And welcome to another episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. I'm Rob. I'm Mark. And tonight we talk top five Doctor Who directors. We talk 30 years of time on the Rani and we talk Bradley Gate. And also stay tuned to the very end for a very important announcement. QC music. Rob, how are you going? <sighs> so tired, Mark. Such a busy, busy life I lead. Yes. Uh, apologies for a bit late getting this uh, podcast out, aren't we? Uh, a little bit late, but real life gets in the way and um, it's, mm. it just seems harder and harder to find uh, spare time. But we've we've made spare time for um, this latest episode, haven't we? We have indeed. And how have you been, Mark? Yeah, good, mate. Good. Busy yeah, getting smashed at work, the usual thing. Uh, Tigers are doing very well, Rob. AFL Talk Corner. Slightly yeah. nervous about Saturday, but... <laughs> <laughs> Look, if there's any justice in the world, a Mickey Mouse made-up team five years ago didn't even exist, by rights shouldn't exist, uh, won't beat you. Uh, such a storied club, been in the AFL for over 100 years now, you, you should win, I think. Yes, I'm a bit nervous, but we'll, we'll see how we go. Look, as someone who has been to three uh, grand finals, two of those winning, um, I too share your nervousness, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, uh, it'll, it's all it's all better in the, in the rearview mirror, mate, when you're celebrating deliriously on a Monday morning with the players. I remember when my team, North Melbourne, won in 96. Uh, that was on a Saturday. And on the Monday, I, I walked past six or seven of the players who were in a very, very bad state. <laughs> Premiership medallions still around their necks, had been hardcore drinking for at least 48, if not 72 hours. And uh, well, well deserved, and I'm sure the Tigers uh, will do the same thing. Yes, last time uh, I had a drink at the uh, Tigers playing a grand final was 1980, and I think that was a, a can of Tizer, maybe, I don't know, too sure, or Coke. No alcohol involved, it's been that long, so hopefully the drought will be broken. 37 years is too long to wait, Mark, apparently. Apparently. Now, speaking of anniversaries, Rob, while people were lamenting the demise, or the official demise, that uh, class got the arse, uh, mm. another tweet came through the uh, BBC Twitter account saying that time the Rani... Episode 1 debuted 30 years ago last week. Can you believe it? 30 years ago, Rob. It's it's humbling and slightly worrying that 30 years can pass with essentially the blink of an eye when you look back. So the BBC's press department, or the people who run that Doctor Who email that comes out from the BBC, seriously, they should get a job in the Trump White House. Bidding they've done. I mean, they called Tom and the Rani Episode 1 Landmark. I've never heard it called Landmark before. Crap, I've heard it called, but not Landmark, certainly. We have heard it called many, 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 many things. Think of what Time and the Rani unveiled for, for the future market. You know, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, the end of the Soviet Union and uh, 9-11, uh, the first black American president and Donald Trump. So really... When you get down to it, it is Time and the Rani's fault. Lots and lots of things have gone wrong in the world. So when you saw Time and the Rani Part 1 or, or Parts 1 to 4, Rob, mm. um, what were your initial thoughts? And if you were the producer of that particular series, what would you have done differently with that production? My abiding memory of it is, is just a sense that things weren't quite as I had grown up with. Especially the first episode, it just, it just felt... I felt a bit like Sylvester McCoy not knowing what the hell was going on. Uh, certainly, the the exterior work, uh, that, you know, in the ubiquitous quarry, was uh, was something that I was familiar with. But the, the use of new technology, uh, those tet trap traps, I think they were, where people were sort of caught in those spinning globes, uh, from memory, uh, it just it just felt really it, it just felt different and didn't feel like Doctor Who to me uh, at all. Look, as as with anything with fans, uh, a lot of fans at that point just started foaming at the mouth and, and rolling around screaming, and this wasn't their Doctor Who and. I suppose to an extent you could understand it because it certainly wasn't what I had grown up with. Uh, what did you think, Mark, when you first viewed it? I think it was shown here in 88, wasn't it, on the ABC? But I had the tape, I got sent the tape, and I think what my pen friend used to do then, uh, which wasn't Pirate Pete by that stage, uh, he put, obviously, Time the Rani parts 1 to 4, and then Paradise Towers 1 to 3 because of three-hour tape. So I think by the time uh, he saved up enough episodes and then sent the tape to me, I think it was late November or early November I got it. I remember, uh, this sounds ridiculous, I got home from band camp. Any flutes involved, Mark? No, but there was my trumpet involved. <laughs> and I was actually first trumpet. 
That's quite good, actually. Anyway, another career didn't progress. Leather cheeks. That's what I'm calling you from now on. Leather cheeks. Yes, before I moved into uh, guitar. So I got the tape. It was actually a good day. I got home from band camp and the tape was there. And my brother was playing Bobble Bobble on the Commodore 64. So this is oh, this is what a fantastic day. This is great. So had a bit of a go with Bubble Bubble and uh, put the tape in the VCR. And like you, it was just like it was like watching a sort of a cartoon interpretation mm. of Doctor Who. You know how Leisure Hive had that visual impact at part one? This was like the anti-Leisure Hive. This didn't feel right to me. And I just kept watching it going, oh, what's going on here? This is really, really bad. And to this day, I still think it's... Not that great. Just, just wondering, Mark. When, when did you you recall getting into Doctor Who when you were about eight or nine, nine or ten? Yeah. So if you had have been eight or nine, nine of ten when Time and the Rainy first screened in eighty seven, do you think that you would have continued watching Doctor Who? You would, you, would it have had the sort of impact then as it as Doctor Who did when you were actually ten? I think it would have actually. Yeah, I would have watched it because I think if you were nine or ten, it's very, it is very uh, colourful and visual, and there's a bit of there's a lot of clowning around. It is sort of steering more towards the uh, light entertainment strand of things. Well, because I had that baggage of watching the show since 1978, whatever it was, I just felt that this was not the same show for me. Yeah, I, I don't know. And what would you have done differently if you were a producer with a production, apart from wipe the tapes? Well, I mean, given the circumstances under which it was made, look, I don't think any you know halfway decent producer, and I don't think that J&T was anything better than a halfway decent producer, could have done anything better with the material and the, given the circumstances they were within. I mean, there was no, there was no script editor, no doctor, no doctor. There was no doctor who, or there mm. was no lead actor who really knew what he was, what he had to do, what the role really entailed. And you had a pair of writers who were average at best. Um, it was just, it was really an unfortunate period for the show. I mean. Uh, look, I, I'm not a big fan of that particular season, but I, I can see that it does begin to improve so certainly from very very inauspicious beginnings you can see ahead to uh, the next two years of, of the McCoy era being um, uh, very much a saving grace on the on the first ep- first story which was really quite ordinary so you wouldn't call it a landmark then well I mean in terms of sounding the final death knell for the show time and the Rani is, is the is the sound of nails being hammered into a coffin it's just it's just really remarkable it, it, it just it, look we, we talk about how 30 years goes very quickly I mean you look at Doctor Who and say 1978 1979 it's really riding high uh, with the viewers and all that sort of thing and the TV landscape changes around Doctor Who during the 80s without the show really coming to grips with that in a sense I mean yes it goes to sort of two episodes a week which is I suppose an attempt to sort of deal with uh, the soaps or to soapify the show and make it bring it to a sort of a bigger audience more frequently, but I mean, with the space of within the space of a decade, it all just turns upside down and the show's off the air. You know, by the end of that, the new decade, the end of the end of the eighties, it's just uh, things can change very quickly. The whole look of it, so everything's all shot on videotape. Where two or three seasons before, we had obviously the. Um interiors are on video and and the exteriors are done on on film it sort of gave Mm. not a filmic look but it just gave it i suppose a different sort of look it looks very cheap well cheaper than normal it's it's uh deficiencies in terms of uh the visuals really sort of stick out i mean but as you said though the the special effects in terms of those globes uh spinning around they're not bad actually they're quite good for the time they're actually very good but uh and i think also with kef's music and it's a bit it's not it's more of a landmine than a landmark i think (laughs) And uh, this time, unlike when Harry Sullivan stepped on the landmine, uh, it what does go off in the show's face. But uh, as you said, though, from that uh, nuclear holocaust, uh, green shoots do uh, spring up. Irradiated green yes. shoots with ten heads. Ten heads all saying, hello, mother, uncle. Mm. Now, speaking of debuts of new doctors, uh, Rob, news broke over the weekend that David Bradley is impersonating Richard Herndall, impersonating William Hartnell, in an upcoming uh, 23 CD box set, new First Doctor Adventures, and also the entire first TARDIS crew, uh, who appeared in 10 minutes of a docudrama, are now considered canon, Rob. What's going on that? I'll give you all a little insight into my morning habits, my morning ablutions. <laughs> uh, when I wake up, I occasionally, I do check Twitter, and I, I was paging through Twitter, and I came across this tweet, and I looked at it, and I stared at it, and I blinked a couple of times, and I turned my iPhone around just to make sure that I was reading it right. Did you zoom it in and zoom it out? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, 
I rolled over expecting my wife to emerge from the shower. Patrick Duffy style and saying it was all a dream. But no, as it turned out, it was true. Look, in terms of, you know, business, it's genius. It, it just hooks into that sort of, you know, it, it's just genius, isn't it, really? Because there's no TARDIS, original TARDIS crew left that is usable these days. So in terms of uh, hooking into the 10th uh, Planet remake that's going to happen with uh, the Christmas special later this year, it's just pure marketing pizzazz. And I, I take my hat off to Jason Hay Ellery and whoever, whichever other members of the diabolical cabal that came up with this. BBC Worldwide as well are in cahoots with this thing as well. No, one is not surprised by this. I did mention diabolical. <laughs> Creatively, it's one of the most bankrupt and cynical things I have had the misfortune to come across in many a year. David Bradley was playing William Hartnell for the majority of the docudrama and only very rarely broke into his impersonation of William Hartnell. What we are getting is a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. The first Doctor derives expressly from William Hartnell's performance. It stands and falls on that. This is, is creatively, it's ridiculous. It's a joke. It's, it's laughing in the face of 50 odd years of history of what Hartnell performed, the alchemy that he performed and, and you know, created this wonderful character that we know, now know. I mean, for Big Finish to stand up and say how excited they are to do this, how much they're looking forward to producing these plays is just a slap in the face to all of us who look fondly back on those old black and white episodes shot on a stage no bigger than the telephone booth with people working their guts out to create television magic and they come along and expect us to this slap together has the smell of fresh paint like the murka strutting around on the stage of the you know the um warriors of the deep it is an absolute disgrace and i say to big finish take a good hard look look at yourself in the mirror because honestly this creatively it's the most bankrupt thing i've seen since young warwick fairfax took down his own company attempting to privatize it in the shadow of the 1987 stock market collapse in australia mark i won't stand for it there are a lot of people on twitter who are very happy about it yeah but they're people who are on twitter mark most of them are fools and ingrates and you know brainless twits i mean honestly they'll lap anything up with the logo slapped on it these days won't they they are an absolute disgrace to themselves to their parents to their entire genetic heritage my god twitter don't talk to me about twitter mark (laughs) far out and that's why i maintain the twitter account mainly (laughs) (laughs) well those guys off the hoovians tv show are very happy they were tweeting jason hair gallery and saying what a wonderful idea mark 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 hello hello we are doctor who fans we are not hoovians okay doctor who fans carry on no that's all right when i saw this announcement come through you remember that magazine viz yes in the early 90s there's an article in there well, and it said the Beatles are getting back together, but Julian Lennon is uh, not replacing his father. A plumber called Phil from Liverpool, ironically, is uh, replacing uh, Julian. And also Paul McCartney, George Harrison and uh, Ringo Starr are not going to be in it either. But Phil's going to get his mates in, but they're still going to call themselves the Beatles. So this to me, it's just like watching a cover band. It's not the same. And not even the good cover bands, mate. Look, I haven't listened to Big Finish in years, and I think when Gary Russell was running the range, they they were focusing a lot more original stories. We're under Nick uh, Briggs's stewardship. It's more concerned with pumping out and promoting more fan-wank mashups and box sets, while a lot of the more original stories get overlooked. So there's always things like Doom Coalition and a 13-CD box set. You know, the War Doctor this week, and now that he's um, passed on, now they're getting the War Master in. It's just box sets upon box sets to maybe offset some of their not-so-well-selling ranges. I don't know. But, look, some people are happy about it. I was, well, I thought, well, Tim Trelaw was obviously the first step and, and obviously Fraser Hines and those guys. But this is like, well, this is an official sanctioned complete recasting. But, I mean, when does it stop, Mark? I mean, this has its genesis in the docudrama from a few years ago, mm-hmm. right? We all know that Gaddis pulled in Reese Shearsmith to dress up as Patrick Troughton and Gaddis himself tr- dressed up as John yep. Pertwee. So is the next logical step to pull Reese Shearsmith in to play the second Doctor in an audio drama? It's, it's a nonsense. It's a complete nonsense. And I, I find it hard to believe that any of the people involved in writing this are actually genuinely... With the, I mean, I ask them to search deep within themselves and say, are you genuinely excited to be writing for the first Doctor when the person playing the first Doctor is not William Hartnell? I sleep all right at night. Do these guys. I think because there's, there's so much time passed between William Hartnell's uh, demise that this is 
I suppose this, the the first the first cab off the rank. Shear Smith is number two potentially, although I didn't think he was very good at pa- as Patrick Troughton at all in the docking drama. Um, well, they've got Trim Trelaw already. They just haven't put him in costume yet. However, when when uh, Tom, when something happens to him, it would not sit well with a lot of people, I don't think, if they tried to recast Tom Baker, Liz Sladen, and Ian Mata. I think that'll be, in my eyes, a step too far. Big Finish shouldn't get a pass simply because William Hartnell died in 1975 and he's basically forgotten as an actor. It, 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 they shouldn't get a free kick on the basis of just doing this and hoping people sort of you know hold their nose and look the other way when they listen to it. It won't be William Hartnell's first Doctor. It'll be David Bradley playing the first Doctor. It, it rankles with me quite a lot, as obviously people will have heard in the last few minutes. It just... I mean, you know, I can understand the business behind it because I've you know said over the last few years that... Big Finish's business model is reliant on, you know, Tom Baker, Peter Davis, and Colin Baker, Sylvester McCoy, and Paul McGann not ever dying. Um, but obviously, they've, they they seem to, well, they think they found a way around that. I mean, who 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 will they cast to play Tom Baker when he dies? Who will they cast to play Peter Davison when he dies? I mean, they're the logical endpoints. Which ring-ins will they get from the outer outer um, reaches of uh, theatredom in the UK to come in and, and and plonk in front of a microphone and say you play? Peter Davison playing the Fifth Doctor. I mean, come on. They'll probably get Davison's sons in to do it because it's what he would have wanted, allegedly. But then again, I mean, what's Moffat do? He dug up uh, the Brigadier and put him in a cyber suit and off he flew. Well, see, and that sort of nonsense gives license to this nonsense, Mm. doesn't it? It does. At the end of the day, like everything else that's gone wrong in society since, I don't know, the GFC, blame Stephen Moffat. No, we're not big fans about it. But if you are, let us know. And we're happy to read it out and happy to talk about it again. And as a final comment, I can see people out there hate torrenting these episodes because they'll just have absolutely no respect for it. They won't want to pay for it, but they want to get their hands on it and they'll steal it. And it'll still be too much. So, Mark, hmm. in uh, in the tradition of our more successful uh, episodes, we're once again... <laughs> nobody likes us being nice. Can I just tell you, nobody likes us being nice. So we've gone back to bile and bitterness tonight, haven't we, Rob? We we sup from the cauldron <laughs> of uh, of anger and rage and ire. Yes, so we're, uh, we're going back to our tried and tested formula with regards to top five. And uh, as we said at the top of the episode, we're talking about top five Doctor Who directors. From both the uh, good old days... And mm-hmm. the... Uh, Worst new days. Well, fairly okay days. <laughs> fairly okay days. Um, we should just uh, touch briefly on what a TV director does. I mean, in, t- in, just in terms of film directing, it appears that uh, the sort of the auteur, the, the, the Spielberg, the Kubrick, the Kurosawa, uh, is, is more favoured with regards to films. They seem to call the shots, even though it appears to be the director of photography who's actually taking all the pretty pictures. Mm. Uh, with TV, it, it, it seems um, TV directing it seems a bit more hands off or even stands off standoffishness in terms of you know you got to it appears that there especially with Doctor Who the way it was done was the director more often than not was up in the gallery uh, looking at a bank of monitors and you know just basically calling out shots and uh, it was worked out that way so uh, it is a little bit different to to to, to filmmaking um, there there are some exceptions uh, people like Graham Harper apparently. Uh, left the gallery and actually came downstairs on onto the floor and, and and directed from the floor, which was caused a bit of a stir. And Grimway did as well. So I mean, it's it's an interesting art uh, TV directing. I mean, I'm sure there are time pressures that you sort of don't necessarily get with with film directing. Um, it's not something that I know of a great deal. I mean, we talk about the great film directors and we're talking about the visuals and also the performances they draw from the actors. And ideally, we should be also saying the same thing about TV directors, but. Uh, sometimes it's not the case. That's right. So when it comes to directors and, and their approach to our favourite program, I, I sort of came up with the following criteria. Uh, not much better than wallpaper. I'm looking at you, Mervyn Pinfield. Some really interesting shots that bubble up from the material uh, that's, uh, that they've been given. And holy he's actually worked miracles. Direction in a lot of TV production has changed over the years, obviously. In the 60s, it was still stuck in that live theatre technique. So yes. very stagey. In the 70s, obviously with... Star Wars and Easy Rider and all those sort of films and, and the Kubricks, 
the seventies started to get a bit more experimental in terms of their, sh- their shots, and not always successful as well. Some emulation was starting to happen there. And Doctor Who in the eighties, it seemed that if you got your, your show completed on time and on budget, you were considered to be doing an excellent job. Academy worthy, almost. I'm looking at you, uh, Peter Moffat. <laughs> Let's go back a bit. Uh, the rules still apply. We will call out Snap if we have the same nomination. I have a sneaking suspicion we're going to have a lot of same nominations. So whatever points we don't touch on and cover, we'll, we'll discuss anyway. So number five. My number five is Peter Grimwade. He was, uh, in my opinion, one of the best of JNT's new broom directors that he brought on for season 18 and really hit the ground running with Phil Circle. The outdoor location scenery is fantastic, very evocative. Uh, the, the scenes of the Marshmen emerging from the river with the mist swirling around them. It was everything that the Sea Devils, uh, to be to be honest, wasn't. A lot of his scenes are very fast-cutting, and especially with Urshock, he was well-suited to Urshock. It's still, in my opinion, very impressive today. You've got the claustrophobic cave scenes and the freighter sequences and, and, the, and the marching sidemen, those, by bursting out of those silos, uh, scared the crap out of me as a child. Uh, even to the day, it still scares the crap out of me. But and it still holds holds the records of the most uh, scenes recorded in, uh, ever mm. in a Doctor Who. And I think it would have broken a lot of directors um, that that particular shoot in terms of the number of scenes it would have broken a lot of them. Uh, I mean, especially Ron Jones, he probably definitely would have handled it. He was also uh, um, adept at drama as well, Legopolis and Kinder as well. He gets great performances out of the actors. I mean, particularly on Kinder, uh, we've got the the scenes with uh, Reg Hollis from the Bill and. And even in some of the shots as well, where you see the, the prone shot of Tom Baker and the crane sort of shot coming down underneath the gantry there. I mean, Kinder I had problems with when I was young because I didn't understand it. But now when I look at it, yes, everybody talks about how crap the snake is. Mm. But from a, a visual, it's a very complex script. And what he does visually with it is actually very interesting. So, yeah. He was also scheduled to return uh, to direct Resurrection of the Daleks. But a strike and an, an unfortunate misunderstanding over a lunch, apparently... Uh, he wasn't asked back to uh, direct for the program, which in my opinion was an absolute crime because really it needed more directors like him mm-hmm. and Lover Bickford and less Ron Joneses and, and your Peter Moffat. If you watch some of the documentaries about uh, Grimwade, he he didn't come across being very popular with the cast, but he got some great performances out of them and I think the four stories he did on Doctor Who were some of the highlights of that early 80s run, in my opinion. And it's a pity that he was taken too soon from us. Yes, although did you ever see that canuppance of Captain Cat? I do have a copy of it on a hard drive somewhere and one day before I um, shuffle off, I do intend watching it. It's okay. I think I was expecting more sort of direct hits uh, as opposed to the sort of subtle digs, but... Um, Sometimes the subtly inserted stiletto between the second and third ribs mark can do much, much more damage than the, you know, the hammer to the back of the head. <laughs> yes, ask Nick Briggs after your tirade at the beginning of the episode. So, Mark, my um, fifth choice is Waris Hussein. Now, when you look back, Hussein had probably the most difficult task of any director in Doctor Who. He basically had to set up the show in 25 minutes for an audience that was completely unprepared for what they were about to get. Not only was he a trailblazer in terms of his own right in, in being a, a gay Asian man working within you know, the sort of the conservative BBC, he is one of the key figures in the show's long, longevity. I mean, he apparently had a hand in picking Hartnell. Now, when you think about it, a gay Asian man uh, selecting uh, William Hartnell, who was clearly the epitome of the white patriarchy <laughs> in the UK at the time with all his alleged uh, attitudes... He would have voted no, wouldn't he? Oh, definitely. Definitely would have voted no. But, I mean, when you look at uh, An Unearthly Child, uh, especially the first episode, I mean, really it is a masterclass in conveying all new information, exposition to the audience, whilst not making it exposition heavy. I mean, and that works in concert with a very good script uh, as well. I mean, he introduces all the elements of the show uh, within that sort of one episode, you know, 25 minutes of compressed time. The first shot you get of the junkyard really does drip with atmosphere and suspense and the transition from the exterior to the interior will always remain an iconic shot and provide a template for how future directors dealt with new uh, entrants within the TARDIS. Um, It really is a shame that Marco Polo doesn't exist bar a few colour photos because it really looks like a a sumptuous production and I think again given uh, Hussein's undoubted talents uh, if we were to ever see it I think uh, we would uh, reappraise him anew, I think, and, and, and sort of look at a man who was able to uh, take up a, a longer story and um, and convey a sort of a more epic tone to the series. But I, look, I strongly urge new series watchers who may not have seen 
much black and white Doctor Who to at least go back and watch An Unearthly Child Part 1 just for a sense of how storytelling was done back then and the economical way that Hussein conveyed the visuals um, and, and, the, and the performances, got the performances out of the actors. So uh, Hussein, whilst he didn't do too much in terms of Doctor Who, was definitely a tower, you know, definitely remains a towering figure in its inception. And he had a very, very successful career in television and film after that. So, and mm. he, the the story was that he was originally tagged to do the uh, direction for the Five Doctors, but somehow schedules or J and T forgot to actually press the commit button. We're not too sure. Was he at an unfortunate lunch as well with Grimmade? And that would come down. <laughs> yeah, those two were yeah, talking together, and J and T saw them and said, "They've crossed me," and just walked out, and they never work again. It'd be great to see Marco Polo again, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. But uh, <laughs> yes, it would. Where do you think it might have been recovered from? Well, you hear rumours, Mark. We all hear rumours, don't we? So. Mm. Any continent yes. you want to point out? Suddenly rings out in my head for some reason. I don't know what that means, but anyway. Mm. Number four. All right, Mark, what's your number four? My number four is actually uh, somebody from the new series who really made uh, a visual impression with, with me. Nick Hurran. Nicky H. Some of the problems with New Who is very visually rich, but there's a lot of sameness, I feel, in some, and when it comes to certain shots. However, Nick Hurran's stories... Uh, his directing style and the shots that he comes up with really stick out in the same way to me as what Graham Harper's did in, uh, on, on classic Doctor Who. Particularly his work on The Girl Who Waited and The God Complex. And, and just like many New Who stories, he can take a lackluster script like Angels Take Manhattan. Very filmic. And just those, uh, the shots in, uh, in that house and they're going down towards that cellar, I think it was. Uh, and the angels are there. Very spooky stuff. Um, shot like a feature film, to be honest. The, the Stay Puffed uh, Angel at the end is a misfire, but again, he's just working what the rubbish he's been given. His sterling work on Day of the Doctor, making it look like a million dollars, especially on, on the big screen, despite its smallest budget, and a non-canon Doctor, was a feat in itself. It's a shame that he hasn't returned to New Who ever since. So uh, if I was uh, Mr Chivers, I'd be getting him on the phone right now. I'll make a confession here. I don't have any new series directors on my list, and I'm sure none of them are complaining. Um, and it's not because I don't like the new series. That's far from it. I, there is a certain sameness to the visual style for each, you know, for Davies era and also for Moffat's. And sometimes I tend to think that Doctor Who today is made even more on the basis of committee input. Look, I can see your point, certainly, uh, Day of the Doctor does stand up quite nicely. I mean, it, it, it basically passes as a small budget, uh, you know, feature at the cinema. When I saw it there, I had no problem with watching it on the screen. It, it seemed, it certainly, it filled the cinema screen. It had that sort of scope uh, that you need when you, you know, when you're wanting to experience that cinema uh, experience. So yeah, Nick Curran is, is certainly a good choice, Mark. I think to your point about new series is that uh, they have uh, directors of photography, and uh, you know you mentioned before that a lot of the, those guys do a lot of the, the I suppose the work, and the directors sort of do the cutting of the editor. Uh, but I think Nick Curran's work definitely to me stands out uh, heads and shoulders above, say Keith Bullock's, for example. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yes. Yeah, so what's your number four, young Rob? Well, unsurprisingly, given my uh, obsession these last four or so years, Paddy Russell. Wow. Well, what do you mean, wow? Don't, can't you get more excited? No, I'm actually I'm relieved because we're not snapping so far. So, Paddy oh, Russell. Nice. Oh, yes. hold on. She directed a certain story, though, didn't she? <laughs> the Penny Drops. Oh, dear. The, yes. The Penny Dreadful indeed drops. Oh, have you seen that yet? The new It film? Have you gone and seen that yet? Well, I'm actually ploughing through the book uh, again for the first time in 30 years. There's another mm. 30 years thing. Uh, but I will certainly go see the movie. I've heard very, very good things about it. But we'll see. Uh, look, Paddy, a bit like my good friend Paddy. Uh, Paddy Russell, much like Waris Hussain, was very much a, a trailblazer at the BBC. Uh, one of the very first female directors to work for the BBC in television. Uh, you, her tele, telefantasy pedigree is undoubted. Um, she worked on all three of the, uh, the, 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 the Quatermass serials plus 1984 and Out of the Unknown. So with uh, with a background like that, it's no surprise that she sort of found her way towards Doctor Who. Listen to this for four uh, stories that she directed, Mark. The Massacre, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, Pyramids of Mars, and The Horror of Fang Rock. Clearly, she was versatile. I mean, she's moved from you know doing a pure historical uh, in The Massacre to uh, a conspiracy thriller with dinosaurs and invasions of the dinosaur uh, dinosaurs, and then two 
absolute classic, uh, you know, stories in Pyramids of Mars and Horror of Fang Rock, which very much riff off the Hammer Horror uh, era that was sort of coming to an end at that time. Have a think about, and again, I invite uh, people who haven't already switched off at the mention of Horror of Fang Rock <laughs> to go back and watch Horror of Fang Rock. It is a story with essentially uh, four sets, the lamp room, the stairs, the, the, the eating area, and then the entrance. Out of those four sets over four episodes, Cher has wrung as much atmosphere and dread as you could possibly get um, and not, you know, you know, people not drop dead from fear. It's just, it, it is amazing. It really is amazing. Patty Russell, what a great director. I can't dispute that. As you said, the story she's been responsible for. I mean, particularly Invasion of Dinosaurs for me. I got a new appreciation for Invasion of the Dinosaurs at, at, uh, at the insistence of our mutual friend Dave, who, uh, who has long championed it. I mean, it is... Look, the dinosaurs are, are slightly unfortunate, but they in no way um, disturb what is really a, 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 a very well put together uh, conspiracy thriller. Really, Doctor Who is not renowned for its visual effects. Let's be honest, right? And if that was your uh, mandate going in, saying the the shows, this episode I'm watching must have realistic special effects. Well, for classic Doctor Who, then you're not going to watch hardly any of it at all. Because let's be honest, the effects 90% of the time are either ropey or even ropier. But let's also forget that Doctor Who was at that time at the cutting edge of TV special effects. That's right. I mean, it was constantly experimenting. I mean, stuff like CSO and, and, and Quantel and, and, uh, and even very early, early CGI was, 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 was all sort of pioneered in a sense by Doctor Who. So whilst we now look back and cringe sometimes, um, we mustn't forget that at the time it was, it was cutting edge stuff. So what I'm saying is badly, don't discount it because it doesn't look great. That's true. And also, it, me ranting on about Patty Russell is just another excuse for you people to go out and watch Horror of Fang Rock and vote even higher for it at the next DWM poll. The reevaluation of Horror of Fang Rock, has that been over the last 10 years or 15 years? Because it was sort of forgotten for a while, wasn't it? I mean, season 15 largely forgotten because I think most of it's not great. But Horror Fang Rock, an image of particular standouts in that series. I think it was sort of disregarded because people sort of said it was a holdover from the previous year and they didn't give credit where it was due to sort of Graham Williams. But uh, regardless of who the producer was, it stands on its own two feet. The material is bloody strong and the directing is, 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 is amazing. They're just the atmosphere of the whole thing, the build-up, the tension... Um, the characters, the, the the performances that she draws from the, I mean, they're only on screen, you know, for maybe two, two and a half episodes as they steadily drop, uh, and, and and Patty Russell, I think more than just, she she creates, helps create the characters from simply words on the page. Hmm. I take my hat off to her, and she's still with us apparently. Yes, yes, she is. Number three. So, Mark, you're uh, number three, son. I would describe him as solid, and that's not a slight on him or his. Uh, directorial style he's responsible uh for making the crotons fairly watchable and brings pace to the 10 part status of all games but uh david maloney really hits a stride in the 70s particularly in the tom baker era uh who can forget the freeze frame cliffhangers in genesis and, and deadly assassin and particular uh part three in the matrix so the surreal images uh, and the gothic uh, i mean that, that that clown sticking its head over and, and the obviously the sequence of goth in the in the swamp, which uh, Mary Whitehouse uh, didn't like overly too much, his work also on Planet of the Daleks as well, and, and the Gothic Nightmare that is Talons of Wang Chiang. Planet of Evil though does get overlooked uh, somewhat, also from from not just from his uh, output but also from the Hinchcliffe years in general. Yeah. Uh, but I always found the realization of the antimatter creature actually pretty good for the day, and to be honest, Maloney was one of the greatest Doctor Who producers the show never had. Look at his work on Blake 7. Well, exactly. I mean, can you imagine if he'd taken over Doctor Who when Graham Williams left? And Boucher. Him and Boucher together. Ooh. Uh, my guitar gently weeps, Mark. Yeah, it's like a fantasy football, isn't it, really? You could... <laughs> and in actual fact, uh, it is. And I, I uh, also chose David Maloney, so snap. Oh, no. snap. Okay, so what were your uh, reasons for picking Mr. Maloney? Well, I mean, apart from the fact that he managed to hold the war games together uh, when it was basically being pumped out a, a week at a time, <laughs> according to Terence Dix. But, I mean, when you look at his work, uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan, actually. I mean, I can appreciate the visuals in The Mind Robber, especially episode one, um, but I'm not a big fan of The Mind Robber itself. But, I mean, when we move into the 70s, let's look at these episodes or stories. 
I mean, Genesis of the Daleks, Planet of Evil, The Deadly Assassin, and The Talons of Wang Chiang. I have always enjoyed The Deadly Assassin. I, I sometimes think that it gets overlooked for whatever reason. I, I appreciate my political thrillers, and um, Doctor Who's version of the Manchurian Candidate han- stands or hangs together really well. A lot to do with... Um, well, with Maloney's direction, I mean, we all remember the the shot of uh, the you know the would be assassin uh, on the balcony with the, the, the you know the lining up the uh, the Gallifreyan president through the gun sights. Um, we 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 see the depiction of Gallifreyan society as this sort of decayed, corrupt bu- bureaucracy, and a lot of that is down to you know Maloney's work. But I mean, more more than that, l- let's look at Genesis of the Daleks, which for for some unknown reason, certain people that we've had on this podcast discount because simply because of the the Carlin and the Thale domes apparently are next door to each other <laughs> details people details all right half of the new show hangs off that premise anyway <laughs> that's right but i mean genesis is a is a is a war movie it's a, it's a it's a science fiction horror it is it is a again it's a political thriller with you know uh, davros's machinations you you just you just look at what maloney has has wrought out of terry nation's script and you just sort of shake your head and you go, how the hell did you manage to do that and achieve such a high quality over six six episodes? And, and the performances, are, I mean, it's no coincidence that the best directors get the best performances out of people. And it's, uh, you know, you, you get little sort of bit characters who, who come across as actual personalities. You get remarkable creations like Davros and Nida who, you know, yes, all credit to the actors for doing so, but it, it's the director who helps draw those performances out. That helps give them their very similitude. So I mean, David Maloney, and as as you indicated, the gothic charms of of Talons of Wang Chiang, which is chock full of great characters, um, and and visuals. Yeah, they were pumping what was left of the money into it and bankrupted the next season. But um, David Maloney, I take my hat off to you, and um, it's a real pity that he was never producer, as we sort of talked about before on Doctor Who. Mm. Exactly, and and also Planet of the Daleks. I sort of touched on it before. It does get overlooked as part of Maloney's canon. He only did one story in the Purvey era. I don't mind the Dalek stories in the Purvey era. Actually, I think they're all pretty good. They're not. They're not bad. They um. They sort of. Well, yeah, but they. I tend to think that they lack a bit of the sort of uh, psychological depth that you would get in the Hartnell era, Mark. We'll have to ask Dave Bradley to. Uh, Recreate that for you. Number two. Basically, because we snapped on uh, Mr. Maloney, now time for our number twos. <laughs> oh, yes. God, yeah, dear, sorry. <laughs> Good work. Um, I, I genuinely had to wrestle with uh, with this one, but my, my first and second picks. I'm Even now, I'm still wrestling with it. Look, I'm going to go with Graham Harper as my number two, but look, at any other time, any other day, he could be my number one. As you said at the start, Mark, uh, Doctor Who, in terms of the, its directors, in terms of the visual style they brought... Uh, to the show range between you know watching wallpaper dry and um, sheer pure genius and I think that Graham Harper does fall into the latter category uh, as, as I sort of said at the start of the episode he got out of the gallery and went down on the, to the floor and directed from the floor got down amongst the actors and and uh, and very much pitched in and for me, his major impact on the show is his is his visual style. Yes, the performances he drew from the actors, especially in case of Androzani, were wholly remarkable. So we saw a little bit of his visual style when he took over directing uh, Warriors Gate in season eighteen, where it was you know handheld cameras akimbo. But I mean, you come to Caves of Androzani and you get what is what some would would call a not necessarily a pedestrian script from Robert Holmes, but he certainly wasn't stretching himself. And people have made valid comparisons between Caves, the script, and Power of Kroll yeah. uh, in terms of the ideas deployed. But it is the visual style that uh, Graham Harper brings. There's handheld cameras. There's you know use use of security footage. There's um, there is the performances. I mean the performances in Caves are completely remarkable. And I know there are people out there who say that Caves of Androzani isn't your typical Doctor Who. That's fair enough, but it is still Doctor Who. It is still recognisably Doctor Who. And the characters have an extra depth to them that they sometimes, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have seen in earlier stories. Peter Davison, you know, laments rightly that for his last story, he had his best story. You know, why wasn't it like this from the very beginning? And the sort of, the ad hoc approach to putting directors into Doctor Who... Um, as they sort of become available 
uh, sort of does detract from the ability of the show in that era to sort of have quality episodes coming out week after week after week. But that regardless, um, this the just the visual style, his his um, uh, the 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 striking tone of Kaiser of Androzani is is pure cynicism. It's a very hard tone. It's in your face. It sucks the audience in to Morgus's you know evil really i mean he's a sides to the camera no matter whether they were just a misinterpretation of a, of a script direction him looking to the camera and harper going with it is pure genius it's it's a master stroke that um is rarely repeated in the show uh so and and also in terms of his visual style i mean you go to revelation of the daleks i mean it is it is pure gothic horror especially davros's crypt and what is actually going on on Necros. Yeah, sure, Say would, you know, knocked it out of the park with his script. But again, we're, we're looking at a visual style that perfectly matches uh, the script. I mean, you, you can see the, the footage on the security cameras, uh, how that's incorporated into the episode. Again, there's the, the visuals, there's the beautiful use of exteriors, um, and also getting, you know, a really, a, a sort of toned down performance from Colin Baker. But um, again, Mark, the, the visual splendor that is Necros, the exteriors, which really, really work, and they're very lucky in actual fact that it snowed the night before, uh, really makes Revelation of the Daleks and, and Harper's work on it an absolute standout for me. Now, he is, I think, the only uh, classic series director to work on the new series. Um, he did some, some good stuff for me. I mean, I really enjoyed Army of Ghosts, especially the cliffhanger, though I, I think overall his, his work had less impact, was probably a bit more muted simply because of the way uh, the new series is, is made. But look, Graham Harper could easily have been my number one, uh, but tonight he's my number two. And uh, uh, look, I take my hat off to him. I've got very, very fond memories of you know watching Caves and watching Revelation. Snap, he is my number two as well. In a sea of uh, mediocrity in terms of directors, uh, with a couple of exceptions during the Davison and, and Colin Baker years, here comes... Harper, the uh, human whirlwind, like Grim Wade, actually got off, got down the floor, as you said before, and he actually directed uh, the, the actors as opposed to not relaying his instructions through a PA. You mentioned before about, about the visual flourishes. Absolutely, he's doing wipes, he's doing crossfades. You know that, that shot in Androzani when Davison's running, you know, it's over the uh, the landscape of it. Is that tracking shot of the of the camera, which sort of like passes passes him and sort of juts back. Uh, to catch sort of to catch him again in in the frame, that is, it might have been a mistake, but gee, Jesus Christ, it's, it still looks uh, very impressive today, you know. And can you imagine? I mean, you mentioned about Paracrawl before. If if a a director, say um, a Moffat or a Ron Jones or somebody else, and I keep picking on those two, but somebody who didn't have uh, the vision and, and the the energy that uh, Harper uh, gave it, it could have been easily. It could have been easily power crawl part two. He made it rise, uh, and again with revelation as well. Um, he was actually, interestingly enough, he was actually supposed to be. He was earmarked to direct Battlefield as well, but um, he, I think he was busy working on the new Statesman of the, of, uh, at the time. But you mentioned his work on the new series. Yes, there's been some. It's it's good, but he's had to conform to the style of what the production of the show is. Uh, so really, in terms of the work he's done on the new series, he's done a lot of stuff, obviously, um, but. I, I feel his full impact and innovation was in the classic years, mainly because he was my number two as well. And I have a sneaking suspicion, Rob, as we uh, reach for our number ones, that we could be again in snap territory. But we'll see how we go, eh? Number one. So my number one, Douglas Canfield. Snap. Okay. I think that's the easiest thing we'll do all, all year, Mark, that decision. <laughs> What's left to say, really? The governor, as I call him. While other directors were point and shoot, um, Canfield was one of the series' greats. Over that 11-year period, he was with the program. He, he turned his hand to historical, pseudo-historical stories. 12-episode space saga, and with uh, Inferno and Seeds of Doom and Zygon's action adventure. Uh, if you look at Web of Fear, for example, in story terms, it's actually very average. But Canfield directs it like a bloody Danger Man episode. And, you know, you watch episode one, and for how many years did you watch episode one and go, oh, I just want to watch episode two, and not a tally snap reconstruction of episode three. Yes. But he just makes that material sing, to be perfectly honest. He's able to deftly weave drama and action in so many key images from the classic series. You know, a lot of those, those key shots from the, from the show, for example, you know, Keela in Seeds of Doom, 
you know, his transmogrification into the crinoid. The Zygon uh, confronting Sarah at the end of part one of uh, Terror of the Zygons, obviously. The Primoids falling off gas terminals. Cybermen bursting from the, the sewers of uh, St. Paul's. I mean, this guy was responsible for all that stuff. It's a major, absolute major tragedy. He, he died so young and he wasn't asked back to the program when J&T, you know, took over. He could have done uh, fantastic work on the five doctors as well. But Canfield was a very busy man anyway. He was always directing a lot of BBC classic serials and things like that. So the guy was uh, good for a reason and obviously was uh, highly sought after in the uh, British television industry and film industry as well. So a massive uh, a massive loss when he died. Um, but the, the shows he, that he worked on uh, today are, are just you know stunning, really. It's interesting that you said that Peter Grimwade wasn't necessarily well-liked on, on, on set. Um, I, I, from what I've read about uh, Camfield, he was very much loved on set. So you, you, you can you can be uh, you can be friendly, you can be everyone's friend, or you can be everyone's bastard. But as long as you're actually got a vision and you can bring that vision to the script and 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 portray it on the screen, mm. um, you, you you can be highly regarded as a director. I mean, as you say, I mean he's a very much a visual. I mean, it's obvious because he's a TV director, but he's very much all about the visuals. I mean, as you say, the Cybermen marching down the steps of St. Peter's is, you know, one of the iconic moments of Doctor Who, and you see it sort of, you know, recreated again and again. They attempted to do it futilely uh, in, uh, what was the thought? Was it Deep Water, I think? I've blanked those two episodes out of my mind, mate. Come on. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I mean, you look you look at something like The Crusade, where fortunately we've got, you know, or unfortunately we've only got two of the, of the four episodes, but you can see... Um, that the the script, the lyricism of the script, the way it's almost Shakespearean and the way it's written, is 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 matched by the visuals and the performances that he has managed to draw out. But I mean, all, all, I, th- I think the the recovery uh, th- uh, five, four, three, several years ago of the Web of Fear was the, you know the clincher in terms of uh, well, we all knew that he was wonderful. But I mean, the battle scene I think is in episode five, where in in a very short you know. Um, uh, in a very short amount of time, you know, a couple of minutes of just that battle, it really is, it belies the fact that it's actually done on a television budget on television time. It's mm. truly remarkable. And what would have been really great to see is if he'd actually been given the chance to do, if he'd wanted to, do, to do a film. I mean, albeit a, a British film, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm not too sure. But no. even if you look at um, his stories, you know, his use of stock music, for example, to ratchet up the tension... But also, you know, he, he got other com- composers and he didn't rely on Deadly Dudley. He used Jeffrey Bergen uh, for Zygons and uh, Seed to Doom. And that makes a vast difference. Yes, it does. As well. So it just sort of lifts it from, I suppose, what could be seen as a norm mm. and just elevates it. I mean, it was a total focus on conveying the story to the audience, wasn't it? Visually, yeah. orally, or audio, you know, in terms of the mm. music. I mean, I look... I'm a sucker for a person who does strange things with cameras, who moves the camera around, who, who sort of... I mean, like Harper was sort of creeping... He had the camera creeping around the sets and sort of drawing the audience in that way, making them as if they were on set. I mean, you look at something like The Seeds of Doom, especially the first two episodes. I mean, I, I love The Seeds of Doom. I'm mean, even more so than, than, than Horror of Fang Rock. I think The Seeds of Doom may be the best episode in the... Best story, sorry, in the Hinchcliffe era. There's those jump cuts right at the end, I think, of episode one where there's a body found and the camera sort of lurches forward once or twice. And it's it's that sort of visual uh, acrobatics that really sucks me in. And I, I think that Camfield, uh, in terms of The Seeds of Doom, uh, he, I mean, I don't think it... You, you, the Seeds of Doom that we have could not have been done by anyone other than, than Douglas Camfield. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's tense, it's taut... It's atmospheric. It's utterly horrifying. He's un- the camera is unflinching. Keelor in the bed, gradually changing into a human-plant hybrid. Camfield doesn't shy away from the the awful fate that Keelor is 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 being forced into. It is it is a it is a remarkable achievement that he's done, especially with that story. I just I love it. I might actually go watch it now. I'll catch you later. So that's our top five directors, Rob. That was very enjoyable. And also, Camfield uh, cast uh, Nicholas Courtney as the Brigadier. You know, Seed to Doom. It's sort of it is slightly overlooked a bit as well, isn't it? If it had uh, Courtney in it at the end, yeah, maybe. I think it just it it, it stands the, the the test of time uh, very, 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 very well. It's almost Doom Watchian in its um, you know this sort of. The, <laughs> 
don't you know be careful for what you wish for in terms of scientific progress and, and scientific curiosity there's mm-hmm. a for those of those of you out there who who know who hp lovecraft was and his whole ethos was that the human mind is incapable of taking in the the, the vast alien horror that is the universe and the seeds of doom is a little bit like that where you get these sort of alien uh plants that have come to earth and and it's sort of scientific research and progress and an ability to you know believing that you can control it that leads to everyone's basic downfall <laughs> yes anyway i mean i love seeds of doom i could you know wank on about it all night now we also asked our listeners for their uh, top five directors and uh, we'll read a couple of tweets out and, and and facebook messages and the like so have you got them there rob so yes mike we've got some uh, tweets here michael seeley who's actually the author of the uh, douglas camfield uh, biography which i believe is from milk is that right that's correct. He tweeted uh, at us, uh, Camfield Natch, but I'm biased. Well, of course he's biased. He wrote the book on the man. Uh, Ferguson uh, was imaginative. Uh, that's the fellow who directed Ambassadors of Death. Michael Ferguson, yes. Yes, I, I almost had him in my top five, but uh, I, I, he only sort of, um, in my my research, just the one story that sort of leapt out at me. And Coombe uh, was solid. Uh, can you elucidate on that, Mark, who Mr. Coombe was? Tim Coombe, director of the Silurians and Mind ah. of Evil, who, yes, he absolutely, he's solid. Uh, he wasn't asked back because, like many directors, they, if they go over budget, they're never asked back on the program. So, like Tim Coombe, uh, who would have been, you know, ideal uh, for the Pertwee and Tom Baker uh, run, uh, was never asked back. Same with Love at Bigford, which I sat down and watched Leisure Hive uh, a couple of weeks ago. And Visual, that's, 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 that's amazing what he's done with that, with a threadbare script to make it look like that. A five-minute tracking shot on the beach, does that still work, Mark? Or? No, it's a bit too long, uh, I'll be honest with you. You know, he went over budget, was never asked back, and and the program at that time needed people like him. But, uh, yeah, so there you go. Yeah, so Tim Coombe. Uh, the boys from New to Who podcast uh, say, uh, Camfield, Maloney and Harper, obvious choices for best classic directors. Yes, we thought so as well. Uh, though we were amazed by Morgan uh, in Remembrance recently. says so Andrew Morgan, uh, director of Remembrance, but also director of Time and the Rani. 50% strike rate's not too bad, mate. No, it's right. And and, and Andrew Morgan actually admits that Tom, his work on Time and the Rani was uh, flawed, but I'll cut him some slack. He's, he was given what he was given to work with. You can't polish a turd, Mark. That's basically what we have to say. There's another bit of fun fact for you. Uh, the original director of, uh, of Time Flight apparently was supposed to have been Andrew Morgan, so maybe he got away lightly. 33% strike rate isn't too bad, Mark. <laughs> So, Andrew, a bit of advice, mate. Anything to the, with the words time in the title. Avoid, son. Avoid. Run, run like the wind. Uh, they also make a mention of Paul Joyce, uh, Paddy Russell, and uh, Fiona Cumming as well. Uh, always very innovative and also interesting. Uh, Barry Letts and Grimwade are very impressive as well. What do you think of Barry Letts as a director, Mark? Is he okay? I think he's okay. I think, uh, obviously, when we got Enemy of the World back, mm. uh, it did uh, redeem him a lot in terms of because let's be honest episode three was not as boring as one out the lot part one of of enemy of the world is is very impressive visually the, the helicopter shots and then like spiders is okay i think he's one of those guys who points and shoots to be perfectly honest but i think a lot of those guys were that's where the interpretation of directing back then he was doing double duty as producer as yeah well, that's so right I mean, I, yeah he's double hatting i mean his work on terror the audience is good though hmm all right, now, via, via Facebook, uh, Doc Hume, I think, missed the mark in terms of what we wanted, but nonetheless, uh, <laughs> his, his list of uh, top five Doctor Who directors begins. Five, Trow Morgus, chief director of the Sirius Conglomerate. Four, Dr. Percival, director of the Newton Research Unit uh, in the Time Monster. Uh, the only man with the balls to call the master a charlatan to his face. <laughs> uh, three, Sir Keith Goldie, project director of The Inferno. Two, Tobias Vaughan, Director of International Electromatics from the Invasion. And, of course, Hilda Winters, uh, Director of the National Institute for Advanced Scientific Research, otherwise known as The Think Tank. I mean, the woman, clearly, not the man. So lots of good fun there from uh, from Doc Hoom. Hilda Winters actually sounds like a character from Coronation Street from the mid-70s, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, well, if, if it was a character from Coronation Street who promised nuclear holocaust on the world. <laughs> <laughs> With a guy dressed up in uh, aluminium foil. Yes. David Kitchen from the Goodies Pirate Podcast. Hello, David. Um, you'll also hear my voice on that podcast, folks. Uh, and, and mine occasionally. And occasionally, Mark. Uh, so, dear Robin Mark, as I'm not constrained as you are by a limit, I have a few suggestions for best director, hopefully including some that aren't mentioned by others. Firstly, let me say that I've 
really tried to judge it based on the direction and not by my affection for the director or their stories. So whilst I'd love to mention Patty Russell, Fiona Cumming or Michael E. Bryant, they don't quite make the list on those criteria. I'll start off by saying that Douglas Canfield is my clear number one, and I'm sure you'll discuss him, so don't need my extra comments. Of the other directors that did multiple stories of Classic Who, my top five others are, in order, Peter Grimwade, Timothy Combe, Alan Waring, Matthew Robinson, and Warris Hussain. Of those that did one story and were brilliant, I nominate, again in order, Michael Emerson for The Ark, Paul Joyce for Warrior's Gate, and John Crockett for The Aztecs. Each of them did so much with so little to create a world with inventive ideas. New Doctor Who is harder, as the modern, as the modern series has more of a house style, and so it's harder for a director to really stand out. However, of the returning directors, the best is surely Rachel Talale. Whilst of the one-offs, I nominate Sharif Folkson for In the Forest of the Night. I look forward to hearing your picks. Regards, Dave. Thank you, Dave. The thing with Rachel... Talale. yes. Imagine if Syl was saying that. Talale. Sorry. Break his tongue. It's very late at night here. She's a great director. I just can't forgive for Death in Heaven. The uh, the Nuremberg defense of I was only following <laughs> orders doesn't wash, doesn't mark. <laughs> never forget, never forgive, Rob. That's my motto. Yes, uh, Matthew Robinson, yes, definitely. Uh, Resurrection of the Daleks, Attack of the Cybermen. Thanks, Dave, for those. Uh, we also had some other posts as well. Now, in uh, in the setting up this episode, I, I went on to Gallifrey Base and, and posted the query, what were um, Forumite's uh, top five directors? So uh, they've all uh, signed on for having their, uh, their names mentioned uh, and also their, uh, their thoughts read out. So the first one is a chap who goes by the uh, handle of Goliath. Uh, for him, David Maloney, because he was often given some truly outlandish or difficult concepts, invisible aliens, Dalek armies, the land of fiction, a killer dummy, and a Chinese god in Victorian London, and most of the deadly assassin, assassin for instance, and treating them with absolute sincerity and conviction, turning out some of the best Doctor Who episodes ever. Imagine how badly wrong something like the mind robber, deadly assassin, or planet of evil could have looked in the hands of a less skilled and committed director. He was also a master of making stories made on a limited budget look expensive. For instance, look at Talons of Wang Chiang. There were movies being made around the same time on, on bigger budgets that looked cheaper and tackier than Talons. Although, admittedly, Roger Murray Leach needs some credit for that too. So thank you to Goliath. I've got one from Dave P. Uh, who again says, David Maloney, one of the few directors working on the old series to show a progression in, in his ability and style. Each story he did looks better than the last, and just about every one he did has a crazy shopping list of elements to include, but he carries them off. Paddy Russell, his stories feature three very different and distinct styles and are, and are all excellent. Euros Lin, from the earliest days of the new run, he overcame those initial production difficulties and developed an assured style that quickly made him a safe pair of hands, and he's gone on to the likes of Daredevil and Broadchurch. Nick Huron uh, immediately came onto the show with a very distinct visual style, sorry, distinct visual flair, and obviously handled the nightmarish task of the 50th anniversary and knocked it out of the park. Rachel Talley uh, took on some very difficult challenges and carried them off with panache from the quiet atmospheric contemplative one man show of heaven sent to the full on genesis, genesis of the Cybermen and Cyber Battles interesting point about uh, Daredevil and Broadchurch I've noticed a lot of um, those new series directors who haven't maybe been invited back or have moved on to different things are working uh, uh, quite a lot on those Netflix series um, yeah the, like uh Iron Fist and a few of the others so yes they're not being used on the new series but they're definitely going on to uh, bigger and better things on Netflix I mean they've got so much product they need directors for so yeah good on them okay so um, uh, we have a David Agnew uh, clearly not the David Agnew um, from Gallifrey Base uh, he uh, spends the first part of his post uh, attacking Michael Ferguson so we won't read that out <laughs> uh, but we, we, uh, we appreciate your honesty uh, he says, uh, Douglas Camfield, on the other hand, was a genius from the moving cloud back projection in Time Meddler to the haunting atmosphere of Terror of the Zygons, the best the classic series ever saw. Uh, Ken Grieve, I love Destiny and Manly down to Ken's terrific direction. Yes, the production itself looks a bit cheap and cheerful, but he makes the studio sequences imaginative and fun. I thought the Daleks were terrifying in this as a kid, and they still have a powerful presence despite the shoddiness of the actual props. Alan Waring, a greater show oozes with surreal menace. Looks amazing for something shot on by that point at Tuppence. 
Now, the only contributor who made video look good. Video is really hard to do, isn't it, Mark? I mean, it, yeah, it, you, yeah. it, I remember watching Battlefield and just being struck by how much it looked like someone had got their camcorder out of the back of their back of a cupboard and was just prancing around pretending to, you know, shoot television. It was just, it was very ordinary. It's very flat. Is no mm. vibrancy to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Peter Grimwade, uh, Atmosphere and Energy, Earthshock is cracking, as are all these other contributions, a class act. Uh, Graham Harper for pushing use of handheld in the studio and Revelation, the only quality Colin Baker TV offering. If I was being true, Mark, I'd tend to agree with that. Uh, a brilliant, understated performance from Colin, which all go- all goes out the window once trial starts. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> so a fellow uh, named Jason24 on Gallifrey Brace, uh, he's uh, Toby Haynes. Uh, his stretch from uh, Pandorica to Kill the Moon is beautiful. Kill the Moon uh, is less than beautiful, personally. Uh, Rachel Talale, uh, atmospheric, characterful, epic, and intimate. Uh, that all sounds very painful. Uh, Adam Smith, <laughs> action scenes have never looked so good, and his work with actors is brilliant. Douglas Camfield, imaginative, bold, and suspenseful. And Nick Huron, big, beautiful, emotional, and full of imagination. And uh, his notable mentions are uh, Charles Palmer, superb work on Tenet's middle season, helped by script quality and a good return this series. And Derek Martinez, Evil of the Daleks. Enough said. Yeah, I forgot about Derek Martinez. Is it Martinez or Martinez? God damn it. Can't people just sort of tell us how to pronounce their names? and we should, Gets we'll, it right. You know, he did... Uh, what did he do? He did uh, Galaxy 4, 10th Planet, obviously Evil, and um, Spearhead from Space. Ooh, all on film. Yes, all should, on film, all, yeah. uh, Big shout-out, actually, because he... Um, yeah. Ice Warriors as well. I mean, that's not great. It's pretty boring, actually. Mm. They made yeah. more boring so with that uh, cra- cra- crappy animation. But let's. Oh, South Park. <laughs> and the last one is from a J Tomlin One UK. Such lovely handles people have. He defends Michael Ferguson. He says the Ambassadors of Death is one of the most stylish productions ever in the classic series. Derided for so many years by people who'd never actually seen it, mm. and now uh, slightly revered. It is pretty good actually. Those shots of the uh, Martians in their um, astronauts. Suits mm. parading around in broad daylight. Uh, unlike much other Doctor Who that was shot in daylight, it actually is sinister and creepy and a little awe-inspiring. Actually, the way the light bounces off them, it's it's done beautifully. Do you think JJ Abrahams? Lens flare, JJ Abrahams. Lens flare, yeah. He uh, he saw that and said, "I'll have a bit of that." Well, apparently that's what uh, he said uh, whilst he was doing Buffy as well. Well, I'll watch Bassers of Death and do more lens flare. I'll have a little bit of that looking at the female cast, allegedly. But anyway. Oh, dear. And yes. on that note, let's uh, let's wrap this up. 2017 is rapidly heading towards its natural conclusion, Rob. Time marches on, doesn't it, Mark? We'll give a quick rundown of what we're going to do for the next couple of months. So next month, we're going to do Drag from the Archives special. We're going to get through the 80s. I think we all need to move on emotionally from the 80s. Pick up where we left off, which was uh, season 26. In November, we're going to go back to the top five well and do our top five unit stories. Uh, hopefully with a special uh, guest to come along and give us a hand on that. December, we've got the annual staff Christmas party with uh, Dave and Richard. They're going to come on board for that episode. We've got a New Year's Eve special locked and loaded, ready to go. And then January, we've got an episode ready to go. And that's it, isn't it? That's right, Mark. Uh, We're wrapping up uh, 42 to Doomsday as of January 2018. Um, We've sat down uh, over the last uh, couple of months, really, and had a chat about... Uh, where we want to, what we want to do with the with the podcast, and uh, so after a lot of soul searching over the last couple of months, I think it's fair to say, Mark, that uh, we've decided that we will put uh, Forty Two to Doomsday to bed, and unless uh, I suppose you know big stories break uh, during twenty eighteen, um, and you can imagine, folks, what those stories would be, I think that we can say with great confidence that uh, after four and a bit years, uh, we've just about done as much as we can with the podcast. And uh, it's better to go out uh, when we're still uh, at the peak of our powers rather than uh, than not. Yeah, that's right. There's been no uh, backstage bust-ups or anything like that. Uh, Rob's not going off to form uh, the power station and I'm not going off in a separate direction forming Arcadia. We just don't think we've got anything left to say about Doctor Who. And unless we start pumping out DVD commentaries, and, and I think you guys uh, deserve better than that, to be perfectly honest. So, And also... Just time at the moment is is getting. Uh, we've got other things we, we need to prioritise at the moment. So I just want to emphasise it's it's a decision we haven't taken lightly. I mean, as Mark said, we we could have just kept on going and shambling forward, uh, producing episode after episode after episode. But 
as he's as he says um it wouldn't be fair well it wouldn't be fair to us but it certainly wouldn't be fair to our listeners who stuck stuck fat with us as we say down here uh over these many years uh look and as mark's intimated i um it, doing the podcast is actually a lot of work there's a bit of research that goes into it and i know mark spends an inordinate amount of time editing it uh we've got things going on in our in our, in our personal lives and our work lives that demand more attention um i've given up a couple of things in in the recent in recent months to, to to you know to enable that and unfortunately the podcast um is is, is one of those things uh look we'll have more to say in our final episode so many thanks to many people uh, for you know coming along for the ride uh, the last four and a bit years but there's no animosity or acrimony uh, with the decision i think it's uh, it's it's definitely a mutual decision and uh, it, from my perspective it's done with uh, uh, a tinge of sadness uh, but also a, a bit of uh, a bit of um, relief <laughs> a, a bit of relief in actual fact yes that's the word I'm, I'm struggling to find so look we'll certainly have some more to say uh, come january but uh, look we wanted to tell everyone a, a little bit ahead of time uh, so that they could sort of um, well you know, it wasn't just dropped in their laps come January and they had a bit of time to sort of settle into the, the whole idea and just enjoy the last few episodes as we fully intend. It's the end, but uh, the moment has been prepared for. And with our last episode, we're, look, we'll definitely talk about the Christmas special and we'll put a little bit of a greatest hits together and uh, we'll try and make it much better than the last episode of the Doctor Who podcast, for example, won't we, Rob? <laughs> well... <laughs> You, you're a great hater, Mark, I know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just, no. You know, we don't want to have an episode where we're basically patting each other on the back and having just treat it as a bit of a, you know, like we always treat it every episode, bit of fun, bit of lightheartedness. I'm not going to get gloomy about it because, as Rob said, if Phil drops some other load, there's still a, a bet on that we have to sing Africa live, almost live. Almost live and raw, and uh, I was actually thinking, Mark, that we could actually go down to a karaoke bar and get one of our family members to video us, record us while we belted out the tune, and then posted it on YouTube just for our listeners' sake. So the challenge has been laid once again, Phil. Pull your finger yeah. out, son. Yeah, get the wind blowing in the right direction, son. Anyway, so that's the news that we've uh, that we sort of alluded to at the start of the episode. I know some people will be upset and some people will be thankful, but uh... <laughs> just remember, we never charge for this podcast, unlike others. <laughs> All right then, Mark. So we've we've dropped the bombshell. We'll now uh, slowly depart stage left to let our audience digest the news. We'll go out with our heads held high instead of being carried out on in, in pine boxes, basically. So exactly. And on that cheery note, I've been Rob, and I've been Mark. We'll speak again soon. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.